Hi, I'm Brian Pearson. This is The Mystic Cave. We were born before the wind Also younger than the sun And our bonnet boat was one As we sailed into the mystic Hark now hear the sailors The Mystic cry. Cave is a sanctuary for the seeker. Stories, conversations, and reflections about the spiritual journey on the other side of Churchland. Through the summer months, I'm offering something a little lighter than our usual fare. This is because I need to take a break from producing a weekly program, and because you might enjoy some summertime storytelling to take with you onto the back deck or out on a road trip. Each week, I'll be reading from How the Light Gets In, a collection of my short stories published by the Anglican Book Centre back in 1999. Despite my urge to do some major rewriting, I've tried to leave these stories pretty much as they were, except where I couldn't help myself. I'll release two stories a week, one on Sunday and one on Thursday. If you don't want to miss a story... Be sure to subscribe on whatever format you use for your podcasts. And while you're at it, give the podcast a rating. That helps spread the word. I hope you enjoy these homespun tales as we all take our summer sun. Powers and Principalities Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. That was the image given us growing up, and mostly, we believed it. Jesus, the indefatigably loving parent figure, always patient, always kind. Unlike our real parents, if we messed up with Jesus, it was not likely because he was having a bad day. Crayons mixed in with a load of white shirts, caps left off pop bottles in the fridge, the cat's litter box forgotten and unchanged, these things would not faze our Lord. He would smile understandingly and say, Let the little children come to me, and do not stop them, for it is to such as these that the kingdom of heaven belongs. And we'd climb up onto his lap, the chocolate on our fingers smearing across his starched white robes. It was later in our teens that this image began to crack when we saw Jesus more as an older brother than a father. Not even the Son of God can withstand the sullen cynicism of a fifteen-year-old. So when Jesus cursed the fig tree, wasn't that like swearing? And what's this part here, the part you skipped over, where Jesus made a whip out of cords and drove the money changers from the temple, overturning their tables? Did God the Father, like, ground him or something? Smirk, smirk. But still in most people's minds, it's gentle Jesus, meek and mild, not only Caucasian, but specifically middle class, who won out. This Jesus would never start a fight, never talk back to his parents, never make waves. Like most of us, he'd be too nice for that sort of thing. 
which is too bad, because such a Savior would never presume to inherit the kingdom promised by the Father, let alone to rule it. He wouldn't stand up to injustice, but skulk at the door when conflict flared, deferring to the bullies and the antagonists, the schemers and the usurpers, loving them all and forgiving them, for they know not what they do. There wouldn't be a whip in sight. Deirdre Somerset is known by all at rural St. Jude's, my former parish, as Didi. It was the name given her when she was a cute, blonde high school bombshell some fifty years ago. Her hair remains a platinum approximation of its former glory, with never a strand out of place. She wears smart, color-coordinated ensembles, even when setting up for the rummage sale, and has the same sweet smile for everyone, even as she bosses them around. At times, you can still see traces of the blue-eyed teenager and hear in her laugh the cheerleader giggle, but she's a woman who gets what she wants. Sometimes, with the help of that giggle, but also with the backing of the entire football team, if necessary. Dee Dee and Doug, her husband, are not locals. They moved to the area when Doug took early retirement, buying a converted ski chalet atop ten acres of rolling forested countryside. So Dee Dee wasn't the natural heir to the Alter Guild Empire. But her timing was impeccable. Vi Hannon was ready to step down as president, and, as local tradition dictates, the guild members, out of respect, declined to rush in right away to fill the void. Dee Dee stepped up to offer a helping hand. She'd done chancel work for years in big parishes down in the city, embroidering linens, arranging flowers, polishing brass. She knew how to do it all. The chancel guild members were impressed and not a little intimidated, Like daisies before a steamroller, they lay down and let her roll over them to assume the top job. First, the altar guild would become the chancel guild. In one fell swoop, this increased tenfold the actual square footage of the group's domain. Where before, the work had focused on the sanctuary, with its altar and credence table, it now took in the choir stalls, the organ, the lectern, the pulpit, and all antipendia in between. Then she announced she would like to be known not as president of the guild, but as its directress. A president calls elections, sets agendas, and chairs meetings. A directress wages war, plots campaigns, and takes no prisoners. And all in a salmon-colored ensemble with a matching silk scarf and sparkling earrings. The transformation of the guild was all but complete by the time I was appointed to St. Jude's. All that remained was to get the new rector on side, which shouldn't prove difficult. I was fresh-faced and eager to please, flushed with the excitement of having finally been given a parish of my own. My first Sunday, Dee Dee stepped up to me, put out her hand, and introduced herself. She welcomed me to the parish as if I were a visitor, and said, She'd like me to meet with her at the church next Saturday morning at 9 a.m. to go over a few things. I might have assumed she wanted to know how the new rector wanted things done. It was, of course, the reverse. When the appointed hour came, she was waiting for me in the narthex. She led me by the arm on a tour of the church. The sacristy was little more than a closet containing an old bedroom bureau with candles and linens in the upper drawers, hangings in the lower drawers. 
Beneath the bureau, in an old Eaton's box, wrapped in tissue and plastic, was a faded brocade superfrontal from the early days of the church, a genuine antique that probably ought to have been displayed under glass. Having shown it off to me, Dee Dee stuffed it back in the box and slid it under the bureau with her foot. As she led me around the church, she took special care to point out the various memorials, who had given what, when, and in whose memory. Most seemed to have been fairly recent. Then, with an exaggerated display of reverence, she ushered me into my own vestry and brought out the book, a leather-bound portfolio listing all the memorials, one to a page, beautifully hand-printed in Gothic calligraphy. Dee Dee had provided the book herself and made each careful entry. Burse and veil in green, a gift from the Bolton family to the glory of God in loving memory of Edith Bolton, 1911 to 1984. Two brass flower vases in loving memory of Charles Gordon, 1919 to 1940. The book was important to the people here, she said. She explained this to me carefully as if I might be slow, looking at me so hard I had to avert my eyes. Every year it was their custom to bring the book up in procession at the parish anniversary service. This didn't seem to be a suggestion. I left our meeting feeling strangely drained, as if smitten by a sudden onset of ague or perhaps having just witnessed a train wreck. I needed to sit down when I got home and didn't do much for the rest of the day. Several months later, we began planning the upcoming parish anniversary service. Sitting at the long wooden folding table with the members of the advisory board, I ventured a personal opinion. That part of the service, where we process the memorial book, while certainly meaningful and not wholly inappropriate to the occasion, still tended to favor certain members of the congregation, namely those who could afford to make substantial gifts to the church— for the sake of the justice issues this raised, I said, perhaps we should not be drawing such inordinate attention to those with means while possibly passing over the poor widow's mite. The room fell silent. People looked down at the table. Only Dee Dee was looking at me, directly. She smiled a sweet, forgiving smile. Thank you for your thoughts, Rector, she said. After the meeting, I consulted with my church wardens, was I out of line, I asked them? Was this so sacred a tradition? It wasn't that, they explained to me. It was more that Dee Dee had done a great deal since becoming head of the Chancel Guild. In such a short time, she had procured many donations for the memorial fund, and the church was better off for it. Had I noticed the new silver chalice and patent? That was a memorial Dee Dee had brought in. She had saved the church a lot of money— though no one could say exactly how much because the memorial money was run through the books of the Chancel Guild. I protested that that wasn't right. No one should have that much control over the finances of the church. She did not hold an elected position, nor did she even have a term of office, so where was the accountability? She could be funding her and Doug's winter vacations for all we knew. They all looked at me, though I was sure that wasn't the case, just an extreme example— it happens. But it was a lost cause. I stood alone. So, every year I endured the procession of the book lifted high to honor the saints upon whose shoulders the church had been built. The attendance was always good, 
the church filled with relatives who turned out to bask in a little reflected glory and praise, Dee Dee knew what she was doing. Who wouldn't want to have their names in that book? And every year, the sanctuary was beautified with some new adornment, a rear doss curtain in plush red velvet, an oak tabernacle for the reserve sacrament, an accompanying presence lamp in polished brass, a new piano. How could anyone complain when Dee Dee spoke of her secret source for the large flower arrangements for which the Guild received hefty donations that appeared each week on the altar, though the limp funereal gladioluses were for me a dead giveaway? Or who could be so brazen as to ask her what the Guild actually did with the exorbitant fees it charged young couples for getting married at St. Jude's? I didn't have the opportunity to warn Father David about Dee Dee before he started his ministry there, following me. I would have told him he would be dealing not with flesh and blood, as St. Paul cautioned, but with the authorities and powers of this present darkness, with the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, and that he would not prevail. It's been several years since I've heard her name, so I had come to assume that, like me, Father David had simply caved in. But not so. Father David, I am learning, is a fighter. He's not a scrapper. He doesn't go looking for a fight. But offend his principles, and Father David will call down heaven and earth to join his cause, which is what he needed against the likes of D.D. Somerset. At first he endured the procession of the book and its elevated place in the life of the parish. He had other teapot tempests to contend with his first year. Also, he was indebted to Dee Dee for a complete new set of vestments she was able to buy for him from the proceeds of the memorial fund. But then he began raising questions about the book, about the fund, and about the unchecked power of the Chancel Guild directress. At first his concerns were met with the same acquiescent solidarity I myself had encountered among the parish leaders. Oh, don't worry about Dee Dee, he was told. Sure, she could be a little pushy at times, but look at all she'd done for the church. She was a great worker and had the most wonderful ideas. But Father David was undeterred. He raised his questions publicly, both in and out of Dee Dee's presence. No one could say he was going behind her back. He sought the advice of his territorial archdeacon. He consulted with the bishop to clarify his role as liturgical officer of the parish. Like Jesus, he set his face toward Jerusalem. Didi would have to go. Finally, when he was sure of his ground, he called Didi and asked to come by and see her. This was not a good day, she told him, nor a good week. She would have to get back to him. He waited a week and called her again. Again, she was hesitant. But then, her voice changed. It became detached and cold. All right, she said. Next Tuesday, at her home, at 3 p.m. She didn't wait for him to agree. She hung up. When Tuesday came, Dee Dee met Father David at the door. Her eyes sparkled in that youthful way of hers as she invited him in, She was dressed in a flowing pastel skirt and a coral twin-set top and cardigan, offset by a pearl necklace and matching earrings. Her home was similarly coordinated, from the Persian carpets to the accent walls to the shams precisely arranged on the couch and chairs. 
Her hair bounced off her shoulders as she led him down the hallway and through to the kitchen, which was aglow with the afternoon sunshine. The house was filled with the wonderful aroma of fresh baking. He settled into a kitchen chair as she poured him a coffee. Father David allowed himself to gaze out over the rolling hills of their large property. Doug had built several birdhouses and placed them on posts at the corners of the deck. Small birds chirped merrily, scattering the seed on the deck as squirrels scurried beneath them, gathering up the overflow. It was a restful idol, and Father David felt himself strangely at ease, considering the difficult task at hand. Didi was talking about some of the dear old ladies of the parish who had done so much work for the church in their day. What models they were for others, like herself. Would he like some cake? So how was he enjoying the parish? Was everything going well? How about some cream, real clotted cream, for his cake? She scooped some onto his plate with a spoon. Go ahead, she said, though she herself was watching her weight. The cake parted easily with the touch of his fork. Aromatic steam rose from his coffee. She stood opposite him on the other side of the table, her hands holding the back of a kitchen chair, watching him as he took his first forkful. It was heavenly, the cream dissolving into the chocolate, releasing a rich sweetness into his mouth. He looked up. Dee Dee was staring at him, the twinkle gone from her eyes. He tried to swallow, but his throat seemed to be constricting. Who do you think you are, she said. Father David froze. You waltz in here, how old are you, 32, 33? I'm old enough to be your mother, for Christ's sake. What do you know about running a parish? What do you know about anything? You think because they let you wear that collar around your neck, you're something special? Well, let me tell you, mister, you're not. You're a dime a dozen. He tried again to swallow. Nothing would go down. The thought of poison crossed his mind. I'm going to tell you something. She started tapping her finger on the table. These people love me. I do things for them you could never do. Oh, yes, you parade around in your fancy vestments, vestments I bought for you, by the way, from that awful memorial fund, thinking you're smart, preaching your little sermons. But it's not you they look to. It's me. You'll be gone someday, just like all the rest, and I'll still be here, caring for these people, giving them hope. What's the matter? Is this too hard for you to swallow? His eyes were watering. Through his blurred vision, it appeared that she was going through some sort of transformation. Gone was the saccharine sweetness. Gone were the saucer eyes. In their place was, what, madness? Her face was contorting, her eyes flashing, her features folding into a hideous rage. He couldn't swallow. He couldn't breathe. His ears were ringing. He rose from the table, clutching at his throat. It seemed she was laughing at him, cackling even. He turned and bolted for the front door. Throwing it open, the fresh air hit him like smelling salts, releasing him. He lost his mouth full of cake over a neat row of impatience bordering the driveway. He leaned against his car door only long enough to catch his breath, then opened it and threw himself in. He backed up the drive and was gone. He did not look back. When Father David got home, his wife Beverly dropped what she was doing. David, she said, what's wrong? You look awful. I'll be okay, he said. He went straight to his study 
sat down at the computer and tapped out a hasty email to Dee Dee, dismissing her from any and all church responsibilities. He copied it to the church wardens and also to his archdeacon and to the bishop and pressed send. He then went across to the church, locked the doors behind him, walked up to the front and collapsed in the first pew. There he sat for a very long time until his breathing slowed. There would be fallout, he knew, but for now he remained still, gazing upon our Lord above the altar in stained glass who was taking children up into his arms. Slowly an inner calm descended upon him like a dove. He breathed easily again. It would be okay. It would all be okay. Father David is a rather dull man, dutiful and humorless, but I could see him becoming bishop one day. I could see the members of Synod surveying their options, the politically motivated, the ideologically driven, the puffed up and the slicked down, and suddenly seeing here in their very midst a rare man of integrity, an honest man, a man of God. I don't know, though. Father David is bishop. As far as I'm concerned, they should make him king. And when that fog on blows I will be coming home I've been reading from my book, How the Light Gets In, a collection of short stories. I'll be rolling out two stories a week in the Mystic Cave through the summer months, and then returning to an interview format come the fall, when we'll be turning our attention to views of death and dying on the other side of Churchland. In the meantime, if you want to get in touch, you can write to me personally at mysiccaveman53 at gmail.com. As always, thanks for listening. I'm Brian Pearson. This has been The Mystic Cave. But it's too long.